let me invite you to turn to Psalm 19. We've begun a summer series in the Psalms. This is our second week of study. And I'll try, try to st- stop starting my words with S. Uh, if you were tracking that. We're in Psalm 19 tonight. God spoke through the prophet Jeremiah elsewhere in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. And he said, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, declares the Lord. God says, make your boast in this, that you understand and know me. How can we know him unless he speaks? That's the subject of Psalm 19. C.S. Lewis once called this the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. And it's a psalm that answers the question, how does God speak to me? Anybody can tell you that you can't have a real relationship if there isn't communication. When Melinda and I got engaged, we had occasion to go out to dinner with my future in-laws. And it was the meal at which I was going to ask my father-in-law for advice. Uh, You know, don't hold back. Tell me what I need to know. You know, Here's your opportunity. Uh, Give me all your best counsel. You know, what's really important in marriage? And he said, communication. And that was it. One word reply. But I haven't forgotten it in 18 years. (laughs) I remember that better than the day we got married. No, the, the hours and years fade quickly from my mind. Communication. How can you know somebody if they won't unveil themselves, uncover themselves to you? How can you be known if you won't reveal yourself to others? And you can't. Now, even in saying that, as we think about this subject, we enter dangerous waters here. How does God speak? Well, if you've been around Christianity long enough... You've heard all kinds of things about how God uh, speaks to people, how he makes his will known to people. Perhaps you've heard people say, you know, God spoke to me and said I should move to Colorado. Uh, I've had college students uh, do that. It's a beautiful place. How how do you know it wasn't your desire? How, How do you know it wasn't your will? I've heard of young men telling young women, God spoke to me and said, we should get married. And the young woman responds, I don't think we should. God didn't say that to me. You understand, there, there, I want to be careful. There are ways through God's ordering and orchestrating your life, through the desires of your heart, through the wise counsel of others, there are ways you can discern what God seems to be doing, what the, the leading God might have, what he might even, indeed even be saying to you. But how do you know certainly that God has spoken about something 
unless you have a certain revelation, an authoritative revelation. See, some things are just subjective. Some things we learn by trial and error. Some things are assured. And that's what we're uncovering tonight from Psalm 19. How does God speak to us? And how can we know that we're hearing from him? Let me invite you to give attention to God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Speak to us, we pray, Father in heaven. Show us your glory. Teach us your word. Unstop our ears. And help us to see Jesus. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how can we hear from him and how can we be sure that we've heard from him. God has written to us two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. You see that in verses one to six, he unveils himself by means of uh, nature, one to six. Verses seven to nine, he unveils himself by means of the scripture. And in verses uh, 10 and following, you see how the psalmist knows that he's really hearing from God. Those are the three things I want you to think about this evening. In the first place, the book of nature. God speaks to us, an unspoken word. Uh, 
concerning his glory. Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see what he's saying? In a nonverbal communication, God uncovers himself to us. That's why we're moved when we see a sunset. It's why we stop and stare at natural wonders. We, we look and we marvel and we realize the glory of the architect and the artist. His creativity is on display in the world which he has made. You see that in the colors of the rainbow. His power is on display in the the power of a downpour in a thunderstorm. His intelligence is on display as you consider the iris and the eye and its intricacies. Uh, His humor is on display in the prancing of a hippopotamus. There's an extraordinary uh, display of the glory of God and his perfections as creator, artist, architect going on in the world in which we live. And it's, it's all the time. The psalmist says it, day to day pours out speech. Night to night displays knowledge. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. It's continuous and it's universal. Nobody misses it. There's no speech, he says. There's uh, no words whose voice is not heard. In this revelation, nobody mistakes it. Everyone hears it. Their measuring line, he says, goes out through all the earth. And their words to the end of the world. You understand what he's saying. And so I want to say to you, listen, this is the way Christians... uh, Look at nature. They see the artist. There's a poem called To the Creator of Creation. that goes like this. I, I see his blood upon the rose. And in the stars the glory of his eyes. His body gleams amid eternal snows. His tears fall from the skies. I see his face in every flower. The thunder and the singing of the birds are but his voice. And the carven by his power, rocks are his written words. All pathways by his feet are worn. His strong heart stirs the ever-beating sea. His crown of thorns is twined with every thorn. His cross is every tree. You see what the poet is saying? I see it. I see him in everything that I see. His handprint is on it all. And the psalmist goes on to speak not only of the glory of the skies, but of the sun. He says, God has set the sun in the skies. The skies are like a tent. And the sun comes out like a a bridegroom leaving its chamber. He, He imagines the sun leaping, as it were, from the honeymoon bed. Not jumping to get away, you understand, but leaping with delight, shouting, all right, leaping for joy and gladness. It, it, like a young man in all his vigor and strength, he, he runs his course with joy from one end to the other. You, you see what he's saying about all of this? It displays the power, the glory of God. C.S. Lewis says that only in Christianity do you get such a balanced view of nature. Eastern religions say, in the main, 
that nature is an illusion and that one day it will pass away. It will simply disappear, thereby robbing you, of course, of real meaning in this world. But Western philosophy has tended to see nature as one organism eating another organism. You know, survival of the fittest. Uh, Man, then, is at the mercy of nature. So in many Western religions, man actually worships creation. People either love it, and it's their soul's delight, or they fear it, and so they bow and prostrate in some way, trying to get nature on their side. But you understand what he's saying. They worship it. But only in Christianity do you have a man humbled before creation as a fellow work of art. And that is what we are. And God is the artist. Now, not everybody sees it that way. Some people, the Bible says, are deaf to the chorus because they put their hands over their ears. They don't see because they put their hands over their eyes. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is what we all have a tendency to do. We, we shove it down. We hide it away in unrighteousness. And we don't get past the creation to see the creator. And so this revelation of the glory of God on display in our world, it's sufficient, friends. It's a sufficient revelation of the glory of God. It's sufficient to call us to worship him Above all things, it's sufficient to hold us accountable before him as his creatures. It's sufficient to teach us. He's ours and we are his. We belong to him and we owe him allegiance. But it is insufficient to handle the guilt we have for having failed in our duty to him. It's insufficient to deal with the idolatry of our heart that has loved and served and feared the pleasures of this life above the creator of our pleasures. And so because of that, God gives us something more. God's glory is on display in creation. That's the first book. The second book puts God's grace on display. You see that beginning at verse 9. There's this sudden transition at verse 7, 7 to 9, to the law of the Lord, to the word, the testimony, the precepts of, of God's word. And so I want you to consider this book of Scripture. I want to highlight four things. Number one, this Scripture gives us the grace of true truth. That speaks to our uncertainty about things. He says here in a variety of ways that the Bible is perfect, it's sure, it's right. Right there means uh, it's a straight edge by which you can measure other things. You never determine, in other words, you never determine Scripture is right by other standards other than itself. It stands alone and above. It's true. It's perfect. It's flawless. That's what he goes on and on about. Why do Christians accept the Bible this way? Why do they accept the Old Testament? That's where we are in the Psalms. Let's talk about the Old Testament. Why? Especially in a day and age where we have such ready access 
And many of us are taught uh, other ancient historical works like the Epic of Gilgamesh or other creation fall and flood stories and various mythologies that, that perhaps for some call into question the truthfulness of the stories of the Bible. Why? Well, part of the answer to that is this. The Bible says it's trustworthy. Now, some of you are saying, I don't like that answer at all. That, that's one of those circular arguments, isn't it? Uh, and I want to say to you, it is. I, I started and ended in the same place. Uh, but all arguments about ultimate authorities are circular arguments. All arguments about ultimate authorities must appeal to the ultimate authority in support of its claim. Otherwise, the other thing you appeal to is an authority over the Bible or whatever authority you're trying to establish. So in other words, we don't go to PhDs in Old Testament or doctors of philosophy to tell us we can trust the Bible because then they are our authority. No, God says we can trust his word. God speaks to us through his word. God establishes its authority. Now we've come to believe it because the spirit of God has taken the word of God and persuaded our hearts that it is true. And the spirit of God does that again and again and again. But listen, if you try to establish anything, the authority of anything, your appeal must be to that thing. If you want to be an authority to, if you want reason to be your authority, your appeal will be to your own reason or to the reason of some other person you respect, then they'll be the authority. You, you understand what we're saying? This is why one, uh, we believe the Bible in part. The Bible says we can believe the Bible. But more than that, even with regard to the Old Testament, we also embrace the Bible as right, true, flawless, because Jesus said so. We accept as Christians God's word as an act of devotion to Jesus who read the Old Testament, memorized it, employed it in ministry with people. He said things like the scripture cannot be broken. John 10 verse 35. In Luke chapter 24 verses 44, uh, it says that um, he tells the disciples that everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus fulfills the Bible and simply as an act of devotion, we receive it as well. And so all I'm, all I'm saying to you is this, when the Bible speaks, God speaks, and you can believe it, you can trust it. You get from it the grace of true truth. Now, the second thing you get is the grace of new life. Notice the language of verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It speaks to my powerlessness. I'm incapable of doing for my soul what needs to be done. And God, through his word, does for me what I cannot do. He brings life to me. Oh, the Bible is not simply a book with some, you know, outward external commandments telling you what to do and God saying to you, now just shape up and do what I've told you to do and all will be well. It's not that at all. 
Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf. It is about a real internal heart work of God giving life to the dead. And that means the Bible is God's means to accomplish that end. This is why in Redeemer, you will see the Bible front and center in our ministry. We try to bring the Bible to people because we trust God to use his own word to bring life. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So if you want to grow in faith, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to grow in knowing God, get under his word, listen to it. It's where his grace is being poured out. The third thing it does is it gives you the grace of wisdom. Not only the grace of true truth and the grace of new life, it gives you the grace of wisdom. That speaks to our foolishness. Notice the language here. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. It is a sure and trustworthy word that you can believe. Why? Because it explains reality as reality really is. And it teaches you to live the truth corresponding to that reality. What am I saying? It, it, it pulls the pieces of the great jigsaw puzzle of life together and puts them in place. It makes wise the simple. Now, I, we realize, of course, that there are a lot of people with a great deal of wisdom out there who could care less for the Bible Because there's a lot of common sense wisdom out there. A lot of people listened to their mom when she said, don't lick your finger and stick it in a light socket. Uh, Perhaps you've had the experience of seeing some foolish person stick their wet tongue to a cold, frozen light pole. And you said, I won't do that or I'll get stuck like they did, right? Common sense wisdom. There's a lot of that in the world. We're talking about wisdom in a spiritual sense. This book enlightens the eyes, it says. It makes sense of life from a spiritual perspective, which is true reality. Let me give you an example of that. What makes better sense of our experience as people, both the glory and the gruesomeness? Why are we a people so capable on the one hand of such greatness? You know, we're watching, you know, NBA uh, semifinals. Extraordinary athletic ability on display. Or, or you read academic journals. In, incredible genius intelligence on display. Or the medical marvels and miracles uh, in our world that we have access to every day if we need them. Man, man is capable, mankind is capable of so much greatness, and yet such depravity. And I don't need to go into it, do I? Such vileness and filth. Sometimes you see it in the same, in startling display in the same people. Why is that? Well, you can go with the answer of the actress Shirley MacLaine who said, I am God. And you can embrace your own deity and say, that's why I'm capable of such greatness. 
Or you can say, oh, I know myself really well. There's such filth in my mind. I must be a demon. I'm so bad. Or you can embrace the view of the Bible, which is this. You are made in the image of God. You are made to represent Him on the earth, and He is the thoughtful, wise, glorious, powerful, intelligent, creative creator of all things, and He designed you to reflect the glory of that image. And whether you do anything great or not, you are inherently, not based on your works, just inherently full of great value and dignity, glory and greatness. And yet, you are marred and twisted. The fall into sin has bent us in on ourselves and we're not what we ought to be. And so we see in ourselves we're a mix of beauty and the beast, we might say. And that actually makes great sense of who we are as people. The Bible gives you this kind of spiritual wisdom and that ought to be really encouraging to you. It means... It means you don't have to understand everything to know what's really genuinely true. Now listen, what I'm saying does not mean you don't have to strive for excellence in your education. I'm not saying you don't have to do your homework to know things. I'm not saying you just need your Bible in order to learn calculus. That is not the point But this means you don't always have to defend yourself. You know, maybe you've had a teacher or professor, perhaps, at some point in your experience, who railed against Christianity. They thought it was foolish to believe the Bible, foolish to believe in Jesus. And your best response was, oh yeah? And that's all you had. You didn't really know how to respond to the guy with, Multiple, you know, degrees behind his name. That's okay. He doesn't know everything, too. Nobody knows everything but God alone. And you don't have to know everything to know things as they really are. And the Bible is designed to help you live in God's world according to God's reality, as people made to be in relationship with him, it makes wise the simple. And so you can trust it to do that. But the fourth thing is this, it gives you the grace of joy. And that speaks to our hopelessness. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, the psalmist says. You know how it gives joy? A guy named Chad Gray, who was an RUF student at Auburn University, wrote a song called The State of the Heart. And here's a line from that that song. I heard a story about a man named David. And it says that he was a man after your own heart and a murderer as well. Now that makes no sense to me at all. But I must admit I sleep better now. You see what he's saying? I don't get how David could be a man after God's own heart and a murderer. But I'm glad that that's possible because then there's hope for me. And there is hope. There is hope because Jesus came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. 
He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came not for those who are found, but for those who are lost and to bring them home. And this word is designed to bring you to him that you might find the true knowledge of God and have joy and happiness in him. And it rejoices the heart. That's the message of grace. It does all these things. God's God's unspoken word of revelation of nature speaks his glory to me. God's written word in scripture speaks his grace to me. But how do I know when I'm listening? How do I know? Three things and we'll close with this. Verses 10 and following. By your desire, by your delight, and by your disturbedness. Listen, look at the first. Look at how the psalmist responds to the word now. When he says at verse 10, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. You see what he's saying? It's, it's more precious to me than money. It's more valuable to me than riches. And I want to ask you that. Have you discovered the wealth, the sweetness, the desirability of God's word? Some conversations you never forget, like the one with my father-in-law, though I forgot the date. It was another conversation, 1990, I was a sophomore at the University, Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, and I was walking down the street one day carrying a Bible, and it had the little gold gilded edges, and so anybody who knew a Bible might surmise that's what it was, and a guy named Tom, who I did not know, walked up to me and started talking, and we began to walk together and talk about things, and finally he turned to me and he looked at the book and he said, I, I've read it, and I hate it. I'd, I'd been a Christian for a year and a half or two years or so. I, I didn't even know how to respond to somebody telling me they hated the Bible because I had fallen in love with the Bible myself. But looking back, I think it's probable that Tom had read the Bible and only tasted the law, but not the grace. He saw his guilt, but not a savior. Calvin, John Calvin says this, if the law did nothing else but command us, how could it be loved? Since in commanding, it terrifies us because we all fail in keeping it. Certainly, if we separate the law from the hope of pardon and from the spirit of Christ, so far from tasting it to be sweet as honey... We will rather find in it a bitterness which kills our wretched souls. Have you begun to delight in the word because it's led you to the Savior who delights to pardon you? The second thing I want you to think about is is this. Not only you desire it, but you delight in it. And he says this in verse 11. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. And here I think he means this very positively. He He is thankful and grateful that the scripture has warned him away from certain things. And he's discovered that in keeping it, there is great reward. And here, he does not mean, I do not believe, and I certainly do not, 
that he is saying that if, as I obey, I therefore get some reward as though my obedience has placed God in my debt. And by doing what I ought to do, God is now obligated to give me something good as a reward. That is not what he is saying. Notice the language. In keeping it, there is great reward, not for keeping it. Augustine said this, sin is its own punishment. And we might say virtue is its own reward. And the reward is not external to the keeping. It is in keeping with the keeping. Goodness itself is is joyous. Obedience brings joy and blessing in the keeping of God's commandments. Learning to live as he designed us to live. There's satisfaction. There's happiness. There's misery. When we live against how we were designed. I think this is what he is saying. And he delights in God's word because it teaches him this. But finally, you know you're hearing the word not just because you desire it and you delight in it. But because you're disturbed by it. See, none of us have, have ever kept the word that we have heard as well as we ought to have kept it. And the psalmist knows that. So even as he says, in keeping it, there's great reward. He immediately says, oh, who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep me from presumptuous sins. He begins to speak about himself. And he says, you know, I've got big problems. There are things I have done, even unintentionally, even innocently, that are errors, that are wrong. And I need to be forgiven for them. More than that, I have hidden faults. Things that are so ingrained in my personality. That when I think about me, the me that I like, I don't even notice the flaws that others who know me well might see. But they're hidden from me. Calvin said there's not a man who knows the hundredth part of his own sins. Listen, there are people today who will say, you've got to confess all your sins or you cannot go to heaven. You've got to get them all off your chest and out your mouth before God. Listen, if you start to confess your sins, you'll never quit. If you just confess the sins of this day, they might never end if you really knew them as they are because you've not loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. You've not loved your neighbor as yourself every moment of this day the way God has designed. Oh, friends, our hope is not in our confession. We need to confess that our confession is inadequate and full of sin. There are all kinds of hidden faults at work in us. We need Christ to save us and to save us even from a worse thing. What he calls presumptuous sins. This is his last idea here. He knows that there are high-handed ways of sinning. Uh, I think John Piper has it right here when he says the point of this, when he says keep your servant from presumptuous sins. I think Piper has it right when he says the point is not that there's a special category here of extra bad sins like murder or treason. The point here is that there's a special category of sinning Namely, sinning in arrogant defiance of a known rule or law. 
It's not so much what you do that puts sinning in this category as whether you do it with forethought, defiance, and rebellion. That's what he's calling presumptuous sins, great sins, with eyes wide open, with a heart that knows it shouldn't. It says to God, but I'm going to do it anyway because I want what I want. And the psalmist says, Christians struggle with that. So Christians pray, Lord, keep me from that. May they not have dominion over me. Do you see how disturbed he is about himself as he's read the word? People sometimes think that they've heard from God, says my friend Les Neeson, when they have a peaceful, easy feeling that comes over them. But the psalmist is disturbed. The first time you take God's word seriously is the first time you realize that you don't take God's word seriously enough. And it breaks your pride. Perhaps that's why he ends at verse 14 by reminding himself that Yahweh, the Lord, is not only his rock, but his redeemer. Because that law that breaks his pride and disturbs him, that law that he can never obey to the satisfaction of God, that law was kept by his Savior. And he bore the curse of a broken law away. And so Jesus has become sweet to his soul. Has Jesus become sweet to yours? Are you hearing his word? May the Lord help us do so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we need you. We need the, the blessing that your Son has established for us. Oh, make it so and grant that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you.